0: Welcome to the Good Shepherd in the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child using the method of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I'm your host, Kerry Meckie Lozano. Today we have my friend Ruth Ohm Sutherland back on the podcast. Ruth is a catechist and a formation leader for the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, but she is also a scripture scholar. And so she is joining me to dive into the mystery of the Eucharist. I hope you enjoy. Ruth, welcome back to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: Ruth, tell us a little bit about who you are and your involvement in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd.
1: So, I'm a catechist here in Wausau, Wisconsin, where I was transplanted about 10 years ago from the San Francisco Bay Area. And at that time, I was teaching at the Archdiocesan Seminary. In scripture. Um, my great love is scripture and archaeology. So it was through a series of different events that I came to the CGS at first rather unwillingly, but then as with many, you have that first taste and then suddenly you cannot let go of it and you're diving in way over your head. So the same had happened with me. So I'm currently in Wausau now and um Started the CGS here and am working with all three levels of children here.
0: You're also a formation leader, so you form catechists in this work yes. as well. And
1: Yes, I'm a formation leader for level one and in process for level two.
0: And do you still teach in the collegiate level?
1: Um, there is no seminary close by here. I do frequently do the scripture courses for the MAPS program at the um, Aquinas And then a little bit for the diocese, a little bit here and there. You know, whoever asks for scripture help, usually I'm available. That's really neat. So I'm
0: excited to dive into the topic of the Eucharist with you specifically because of your experience in scripture studies and being able to dive into Mm -hmm. scripture. To look at our relationship with God throughout salvation history, specifically in light of the Eucharist, through the eyes of scripture. And that's, I'm excited about this. So... Ruth, dive into the Eucharist with us. Dive into how God has a plan throughout Salvation to the History. From when, since we have fallen, Genesis chapter 3, since we have fallen, how has God had a plan for restoration to be with us? It's a huge question.
1: It is a huge question. I think The start of that is actually in Genesis 1. We can start with the fall, but the fall really only makes sense as a disruption of a relationship, a relationship which had already been there, right? So in Genesis 1 is where we hear about the creation, we hear about God's character. It tells us something because everything that he created, he reflected upon and it was good, So, the goodness of God comes into the goodness of the creation, culminating, of course, in the creation of the human. And that creation is very good in God's eyes. And we hear just in those first chapters as well, not only that it was good, but also that there was some kind of a relationship active between God and his creation, between God and his human creation. Um, And the place that we hear it most beautifully is this walking in the garden, that it was customary for God to be walking in the garden of Eden, and in some kind of a companionship with his human creature. We hear it in the context of, he's looking for his human creature for Adam and Eve, who of course have already, uh, already disrupted the relationship by eating of the tree, the apple from the tree. But it tells us that there is something there, that there is a companionship and a relationship there that is enjoyed by both sides. We have just that little verse in Genesis, but we also hear about it more expansively in later writings in Scripture. So in the Prophets, and especially also in the Psalms, is a reflecting back on all of israel's events but also prominently on this relationship with god and it's there in the psalms that we hear about seeking out god or god already knew us before that we were formed all those little tidbits of ongoing reflection by the people of israel on much earlier events such as that time in creation so it's really a little drop that we hear about in genesis through that one verse and through the verses about the goodness of creation, but it is in later writings that we can learn more expansively about what that relationship was and how really it was one of a desire of God to be with us. So we start with that point. God wishes to be with us. He created us also to be in relationship with him as well as be in relationship with one another as Adam and Eve were in relationship with one another. So there was this way of being together that was very beautiful, very dynamic, very trusting in that Garden of Eden. Until then, the fruit was eaten and that relationship was disrupted. From that moment of disruption, we also hear that God has this plan to restore all of creation, not just humanity, but all of creation to that goodness that which was created by him in the first place. So we know in Genesis 3 that this plan is in place, that God already has a design to bring us to that fullness of creation again. That's what we hope for or wait for, hope meaning the Christian sense of hope. It's a hope that is reliable. It's a hope that it's true. It's not the hope of, boy, I really hope my son Dominic's going to clean his room this (laughs) afternoon, where there's absolutely no certainty he will. Our Christian hope is one of, we know it's going to happen. We are waiting for that time, and our hope is really seated in anticipation rather than not being so certain right. and, uh, or having an uncertain outcome. So we know already in Genesis 3 that that is going to happen. And the rest of time unfolding in Scripture is this beautiful, long narration of how God is continually seeking out his human creation, always initiating in what we call the covenant relationship, this special bond that God has with his human creation and has most particularly with his people of Israel who were born into a people, if you will, as the beacon that's going to draw all people back into the relationship with God. So the rest of scripture is this long story of God in pursuit of us and humans sometimes responding very fully as we have with some of the patriarchs like with Abraham example was one of the greatest with David but then also these episodes where humans fail to respond to him right and have this roller coaster relationship with God where sometimes they're at a real high point and close to him like David the first ideal king and then sometimes completely fall on their faces also like David as he did with his illicit affair with Bathsheba. Nonetheless, God is always there and seeking. And God provides, this is what we read in particular in the Old Testament, God provides these touch points where there's like a massive infusion of divinity into human reality. And those are those high points of the covenant, like when he makes the promise with Abraham or he makes the promise with David, or when he calls Samuel out of, you know, the middle of nowhere and Samuel runs to respond, but doesn't first know who he's talking to. So there are all these moments where God is interjecting himself prominently into our human reality. And it's like those moments are this massive electric charge into human life, many of which the people respond. And then they kind of go about their daily life and it's almost as if they've forgotten about this relationship and there comes a lack of response or an entire rejection. And there is humanity given certain people in leaders in Israel who say, no, we need to get back on track with God. We need to come back to that relationship with him. And God is always there Mm -hmm. waiting, waiting for us to return. Mm -hmm. So then we have this another massive infusion of electric divinity in the person of Jesus, right? That is then God himself fully showing himself to us in human form, still with that promise of, I will be with you always. I have been with you always. Mm -hmm. That's what we see in the Old Testament in those episodes of Covenant particular covenant infusions, I'd say, but then also so prominently at the time of Jesus, who is then continuing to promise to be with us. And that's where then we know he has never left us because he has left himself with us, particularly in the Eucharist, but also in the other sacraments. So we continue to wait. We continue to be with him in this particular way in the Eucharist as we are anticipating being with him in this full way and enjoying that relationship to its full extent the way it was originally in creation, what God had intended for us um, from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's so remarkable to me in thinking about that God with us in the Eucharist is reading that constant pursuit of God with us. We read it so prominently in Exodus, that beautiful story of God calling out his people again, who've all but forgotten who he is, basically trying to invite them to a three-day retreat out in the (laughs) desert with Pharaoh, you know, kind of always rejecting that idea and finally just kind of capitulating and saying, okay, go, 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 go get out of here. You know, I'm done with these plagues. And then, changing his mind of course, and then pursuing them into um, the Red Sea. But then that those stories about what happens as they're encamped at Sinai and how God shows himself in different ways through the pillar of fire, the pillar um, of cloud, later as they're wandering through the manna in the desert, through the water from the rock. And we get to see those events in a particular way at that moment, as we're reading it in scripture, but then we get to see them later too, as the prophets and the psalmists are reflecting back on those events and understanding more about God through the events or through the lens of the Exodus. And all this while, what we come to see throughout the Old Testament is that God has named this people, Israel, who have this particular role to draw humanity back to Godself, And it takes thousands of years that from this people, Israel, there will be just a few who have stayed close to him, who have desired that relationship with him, who are hoping for him, And it's just a few people within all the 12 tribes of Israel who are being cultivated and who will be ready to understand that gift that comes through God, through the person of Jesus, ready to recognize him, ready to enjoy him and listen to him and follow him when he's there on earth it takes all of that time of cultivation in spiritual life physical life for humanity to have just a few of them who will be ready to hear him when he's there recognize him when he's there enjoy him and enjoy and and see that birth with him and the people of course you know as as we know through our cgs presentations in particular, those first people are not the grand kings and the royal rulers of the time or even of Israel. It's those those people who are the people of very little, very little means, Mary and the shepherds, who are the ones that are spiritually the richest to be able to hear that announcement of his birth and respond to it or to witness that that birth. The announcement of the birth and to say yes to it and yes to it joyfully and anticipate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: It amazes me how throughout salvation history, you know, God knows the full plan and then he just has put little things throughout history for it to grow. Yeah. And like you said, it with the Israelites, it wasn't until they looked back and was like, oh, wow, there's the hand of God. Because it's just so small, the way he's worked throughout salvation history, and you can see it with the Eucharist as well, like what you were saying with the manna or, um, you know, the Passover, and we can see these, this golden thread or these little seeds planted throughout salvation history towards the greatness that is the Eucharist of God being with us, even still today. It's it's so beautiful how how God works in such small ways. The children love that. The children love the smallness of all of that.
1: Yes, they relate to the smallest Mm -hmm. of all of it. And then there's there's all these little pockets in Scripture where something is, you know, hidden to you. And, you know, my neighbor may have recognized it before I did, but there is certainly a sense of when you're ready to hear it in Scripture, then it's revealed to you, Mm -hmm. even though the words are always on the Mm -hmm. page. So one of the things that for me was like this huge aha when working through the scripture um, narrative specifically on the Eucharist was the name of where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows the songs. Everybody knows where he's born. We do it with the children. And I had been working with this piece of scripture for 15 years, (laughs) And never stopped to consider its Hebrew name, Beit Lechem. And it was like a thunderbolt hit me. Like, why haven't I ever seen this before? That there are several small towns in ancient Israel that begin with the name of Beit, which basically means house of, or lineage of, or family of, or dynasty of. And Lechem means bread. And so you see that God's plan was there before anyone ever mm-hmm. recognized the true meaning of that word. The fact that the the name of the town, Bethlehem, the house of bread, that Jesus was born there is already pointing mm-hmm. towards this reality that will happen after his lifetime mm-hmm. of his being continually there in that bread at the Eucharist.
0: And it's so neat because the prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem, in the house of bread, hundreds of years before he was even born. Right. So you see that beautiful God's plan throughout salvation history was already in place from the very beginning. Or the fact that he was born in a trough.
1: Yeah, right, in a feeding trough, right?
0: Right, a feeding trough. He. I'm sorry, he was placed in a feeding trough. He was placed in a place of food
1: right which speaks both to you know that nourishment is what that he is that nourishment right there's that image mm-hmm. of the infant lying in the food trough that you know we first only think of as this is the food bowl for the animals but it's more than that and that points us forward right that points mm-hmm. us to reality that at that moment of his birth was still yet to come you know mm-hmm. that gets unfolded in a greater understanding over Jesus's lifetime and i think culminating especially in in John 6 when he talks about in the bread of life discourse about right. being having eternal life by eating that bread. Right. So those, you know, even the name Bethlehem Ephrathah as it is in in the Micah prophecy, I would have never in a million years thought to connect the name Bethlehem with house of bread. At that in that prophecy, it's the announcement of the tininess of that town, the smallest, most insignificant tribe that will be the site for a new ruler for Israel. But even at that time, it was no accident, or even at the time when Bethlehem was first instituted as a town, that plan was already there for God. And Mm -hmm. he gave us just those little drops like Israel in the desert, just these little drops of greater understanding, greater opportunities to be in awe of him Right. Um, and to find our place in that plan and to be with him through our participation in his plan.
0: Right. And like the manna, the little drops in the desert... It also makes us dependent on him and a form of trusting as well. You will provide what we need, just what we need, the essential of what we need, when we need it, and not a drop more. You will not be able to hold on to it for tomorrow. I will provide for tomorrow. And in the same way, that's how he's been revealing himself in small manna-like ways throughout salvation history. Here's what you need for now. I will provide what you need for tomorrow.
1: Right. Right. And that was that's not something that is understood by the Israelites at that moment in the Exodus. Right. They're Mm -hmm. just hungry and (laughs) they're asking for this food, not understanding the supernatural nature of this food. Right. Right. And it's not until later writers are reflecting back on the Exodus that he fed us when we need us. At that moment, they're looking for a physical satisfaction. God is thinking there's a spiritual side that's more important. And that's one of the beauties of the Exodus narrative is to see, that's where we really see in scripture that we live in this physical reality, reality, often forgetting there is a spiritual reality, which is stronger and and often more important, but we live in this physical reality and what we really need to be heading towards is the spiritual reality. So God condescends to us by satisfying the physical need, helping us to grow to that spiritual place that we need to be, that the physical and the spiritual go hand in hand with each other, that what Israel really needs is spiritual growth, is that trust in the relationship with God. And God condescends to help Israel into that trust by the feeding of the manna. Mm -hmm. And like you said, by the manna, you know, becoming destroyed every night, that they have to learn every morning to get up and to retrust. And our inclination, of course, is to hoard, to
0: Mm -hmm. satisfy
1: future physical needs. And God is always saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. And he had to do that over and over again with Israel. That's what we see in the Exodus. But it, it of course, never ended with the Exodus. It's still happening now. And
0: he's still teaching <laughs> the same lesson. <laughs> we're,
1: yeah. still, we're still <laughs> kind of battling our physical nature when we really, you know, our God is asking us to grow in, in the spiritual nature first.
0: Mm-hmm. You see it also in... The expectation of the coming of the Messiah, they were expecting a king, a soldier, Mm -hmm. someone to save them in a very physical manner. Yes. And God was thinking about saving their souls, about um, what they needed on a spiritual sin. And so he sent them something so much smaller. He sent them a baby, a dependent baby. I just love that so much. I love the way throughout salvation history you can see it's almost like in a physical way God is getting smaller. You have this God of creation mm. and then this God, the baby. And then now we have God that is bread. Bread. Yeah. And this it's so beautiful how yep. it's so counter from what we yes. are as humans, where we think we need to grow bigger. Bigger. Like yep. you know, like the yep. hoarding. You know, and God is showing us The exact opposite. The smallness,
1: right, Mm -hmm. right, and that's something that you know we attend to when we're working with the children. Is that smallness that that really is one of God's methods? Is to always communicate through the least, the smallest, Mm -hmm. the lowliest. That's Mm -hmm. where the greatest work happens, Mm -hmm. right? In the small town of Bethlehem, in the land of Israel, that is the tiniest country in the whole wide world. Mm -hmm. You know, in this baby being born and, and laid inside of a fruit trough in, mm-hmm. in the shepherds, you know, the lowliest of society who get to hear this great announcement first, right? Mm-hmm. And as you said, then, in this tiny little host that we have, which mm-hmm. miraculously is able to contain all of God's greatness, all of his divinity, right, Um, as well as humanity, it's, it's, it's something that's, beyond our reach to truly understand it, it there is a lot of accepting that i think that happens um, a lot of trusting for us to fully participate and enjoy that eucharist because it is so counter to what human nature would generally want to seek out seek out the bigness the greatness see the glory and yet mm-hmm. we're being asked like Israel was being asked to trust in the desert, we're also being asked to trust in what the Eucharist really is, to mm-hmm. have the confidence in He is there with us in this tiny, breakable host.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that crumbs and pieces of who He is, all of who He is, could be on the ground and or on your fingertips. It's just amazing how humble. Yes, humble God is in the, in the form of the Eucharist. It makes me think of the children too in our work in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd because it is within their smallness that we are able to see a face of God that we can't really see very other places. The children have revealed to us so often how easy it is for them to see God and accept God's love. And it's in their littleness that that is revealed. And and so we just keep going younger, right? We're going to the right. infant toddler because it is in the smallest and smaller and smaller that we see a face of God that um, it's it's very hard to see other places.
1: Yeah. And their littleness is where we see his greatness, right? Yeah. As adults, we often, I think, have the habit, especially adults who are not familiar with the capacities of the child through Montessori work or through the CGS, as adults, we assume that their littleness reflects littleness. Right. It does not reflect greatness. And it's quite the opposite with what we see with the children is that the smaller, the younger they are, the greater is their capacity to fully be with him
0: mm-hmm. in a
1: way that I think as adults we really have to struggle to keep, to preserve that kind of a relationship. It's is—it's not natural to us in a way that a child, the younger they are, it's very natural them to live in that spiritual realm close to God, as well as the physical realm. There's no divide for them Mm -hmm. between the two. So they can fully be in relationship with him without having necessarily the words to articulate it, words that or a way to articulate it that's recognizable to us as adults. They right. do articulate it. We haven't learned how to see it yet, especially, you know, when it, as they get younger in the infant or even, you know, one could argue in the preborn. We We don't know how to see it yet as adults, but we cannot deny that it's there. It's It's visible in the level one children to us most clearly. And, you know, now with the infant-toddler atrium growing, we hope that it'll become more visible, recognizable to us as adults, what is happening with them in their relationship. But it's clear that they have one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost laughable for us as adults to think, well, why wouldn't they if we trust Scripture? If we believe that God speaks through Scripture, we have to also believe those places where, like in the prophet Jeremiah, he says, I knew you before you were formed in the womb. And yet we don't act like it. Mm-hmm. Most of us, we, we assume that we know the better about the relationship with God, when honestly, they're the ones who are giving us an opportunity to learn from them that they mm-hmm. do know better. We mm-hmm. just have to learn how to recognize it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And the children's acceptance of the Eucharist is so beautiful yes. as well. They. They have a capacity to understand what exactly is happening of this full gift of self of the Good Shepherd in the Eucharist or the mingling of water and wine in the chalice. Yep. And they, they have this deep capacity to understand the spirituality of what's happening behind all of that. That's really, really beautiful to behold at most of us as adults do not appreciate that they are capable of that type of understanding. Yes. The other part is the so how Eucharist points us. To the end of time, God with us at the end of time.
1: I would say that the Eucharist is that life that helps us to stay in relationship with Him and prepare towards that fullness of life. Mm-hmm we were not so fortunate now to be able to live in Jesus's presence at the time of the disciples. I mean, how, what a gift that would have been able to be for for us to be there and to see him truly and to experience him and hear his voice and see his looks and feel his touch. And yet he still desires to be with us and makes himself available to us in the sacraments, and most particularly in the sacrament that is often repeated confession and the Eucharist. So it is an opportunity that we're being given to experience Him fully and to enjoy Him fully in the ways that He already described in the parable, of The Good Shepherd, of wanting to be with His sheep, and also in the parable, of The True Vine in wanting us to be in community with each other and community with him. And at the very end of the parable he's saying, so that your joy may be complete. I think that's the piece that the adults always forget. We are doing this because he wants us to have his joy, his divine Mm -hmm. joy, his supernatural joy. Mm -hmm. And that is eminently attainable for us through the Eucharist, through that being with him In that particular way, it's like that divine infusion is available to us on a daily level if we are there to accept it, if we are there to prepare ourselves to enjoy it fully and be with him fully in that way. I think it's true that when we have frequent reception of the Eucharist and the participation in the sacraments, that it changes us to be more like him and to be closer to him so that we are given like this foretaste of what it will be like when he's with us in fullness, when he's with us 100% with this renewed creation and this fullness of humanity and relationship with him as it was originally intended.
0: What's really neat about the Eucharist and liturgy and the history of the kingdom of God is just especially what we see in the U- in the liturgy of this kind of timelessness yes. where we are living everything that we've been talking about. We are living the creation and we are living redemption and we are living that time of parousia, that time when Jesus will come again, all past, present and future, all of it together. I love that. I love that aspect of the liturgy.
1: It's the mass, the liturgy, in particular, the Eucharistic liturgy is really almost a collapse of time and it is past, present and future all at the same time. So I call it a collapse of time because it's almost like there is no time Mm -hmm. because, you know, Sophia talks about this in one of her articles when she talks about the memorial and it's this well known understanding in scripture that when Israel or now also the Jewish people celebrate the Passover, it is understood that they are living it right as the original event that there's there's no we're simply remembering it, we're simply redoing it, but they're living it again, and that's what happens also at the mass that we are living that sacrifice we are living Jesus at the last supper right we are living him in his resurrection and being fully with him in the way that we will at the parousia mm-hmm. it's as if all of it is one event and it's not only a collapse of time but it's a collapse of space right, right? because we know it's not just us in the church but that Jesus, in his earthly presence, if you will, in the Eucharist, in the host, but all of heaven is there. The entire community of saints and all created beings in heaven are all celebrating with us. And what's mind-blowing then even, is we only think about maybe that mass that we went to or are going to, are participating in on that Sunday. But it happens everywhere, in every church all around the world all the time right so that at every moment for us limited to you know this particular city or this particular church who knows where in india or in china or in 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 france it's happening at that moment but really it's happening constantly and that's actually in a way it's what is also reflected in the book of revelation when the book of Revelation is a series of cycles of liturgy culminating in that wedding feast, but it is all of heaven rejoicing in that presence of God on the throne mm-hmm. all the time. And that's that's happening continuously. It's just we have an opportunity to participate it in our historical time on our Sunday at our church. Mm-hmm. But we forget that it's actually just, it's happening constantly. Mm -hmm. For us, somewhere around the world, it's happening constantly. But in heaven, it's happening without interruption in heaven. And we just get a a moment to participate in that through the mass. Mm -hmm. So it's a collapse of time and a collapse of space. And it's Jesus in his past, present, and his future. It's just, it's more than what our minds are really Able to process all at once. Our minds are not capable
0: of understanding such greatness.
1: That's the beauty of the liturgy,
0: Sophia. In ways to nurture the relationship with God, she says that the task of the liturgy is to free these past events from their limitations of time and space. Like it's, it's mind-boggling. It's so completely one flock, one shepherd one true vine, one body, we are all so interconnected. That is beyond our understanding that it's, it's beautiful. Yes,
1: it is beautiful. It's a, when I, I think of that when, you know, in our presentation for the sign of peace with the children, where we have already enjoyed with them, this understanding of the vertical dimension that we share, mainly Jesus descending through the Holy Spirit. He is there in the Eucharist, us us, kind of returning our prayers back up to heaven, that there is this vertical dimension that is active. And then suddenly we have in the sign of peace, this horizontal dimension that it is through that coming together and through that joining of hands and a handshake, not a peace sign <laughs> but a handshake that we are connecting to each other, and it's not just the connecting to our neighbor or the person across the aisle, but it is through the power of jesus 's incarnation and through his ongoing divinity that we're connected to people throughout the world that's that unity of the flock that is represented for us in that action of the sign of peace it's far bigger than just that moment that we have in the actual sign of peace it's a it's for us experience of a liturgical moment reflecting a spiritual reality that is there that we you know that we often forget is there i think yeah
0: it's really beautiful and the children accept it so wonderfully
1: and they <laughs> yes they they live it so wonderfully
0: Well, Ruth, I think that we have beautifully tapped into this subject, but also barely tapped into this subject.
1: Yes, there's a lot more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast, helping us understand a little bit more about the depth that is the gift of the Eucharist and this covenantal relationship we have with God.
1: Oh, well, thank you for the invitation. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. In our show notes, we have a lot of goodies for you. There's information about Ruth's article called Eucharist, God with us that we had in our 2014 journal that you can have access to. And there's also also strongly encourage you to read chapter three of ways to nurture the relationship with God, which is also on the Eucharist. We also have the audio version of The Religious Potential of the Child by Sophia Cavaletti, the third edition. So there's information in our show notes about how you can access that as well. Stay tuned because Ruth will be joining me back on the podcast soon for a part two dive into the Eucharist. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. If you would like to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, or if you would like to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for listening this week. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.